Kevin Kincaid. I don't even know who that is. <laughs> anyway. It's always soccer in Philadelphia on a Wednesday afternoon. I'm Kevin Kincaid, joined by longtime contributor to the podcast, longtime Philadelphia Union scribe, Matt George. Matt, how are you? I am, I am a longtime scribe. I absolutely, absolutely believe that. I'm good, Kev. How are you? I'm good. So listen, the Philadelphia Union uh, may be the greatest team that we have ever seen uh, in the history of Philadelphia. Your thoughts on that? Uh, it's shocking. I don't. I, I don't quite know what to do with my hands. Um, it, it is. It is quite shocking the way that they have just absolutely blown the doors off of teams. It's not just winning. It's not just uh, you know. There's uh, so a couple stats that have been crazy for me is the the notion that for the first twelve years of their existence they never won more than four straight MLS games, and they've now won five straight games, three different times this year <laughs> yes. is absolutely shocking. Yes. And the fact that they're, they're on pace to be one of the top 10 offenses in MLS history. They're tied for 10th right now with 68 goals. And this team, this team through 18 games had scored 22 goals and was 10th in the Eastern conference in goal scored at through 18 games. DC United had scored more goals than they did. And since then, they have just absolutely just <laughs> supernovaed all over the place offensively. It's just such a shocking turnaround. Um, and you know, they're, they are, they are the best team in MLS right now. The full, full stop. If they, if they have their guys healthy for the next, uh, six games that they would play, they could end up winning two trophies. They should win two trophies if, if everything goes right. You know, it really wasn't that long ago that you and me and Dave were sitting on my couch in Fishtown writing out a list of the 25 stupidest moments in Philadelphia Union history for a franchise that just seemingly could not get out of its own way. And now you're here on this program again. We're talking about doing the double, which is not inconceivable. Um, They are in the driver's seat for the supporter shield after LA went out on short rest and got a one, one draw with Minnesota. Um, The funny thing about all this is that I still feel like they're a defensive team, even though they have a plus 46 goal differential, they've scored 68, 68 goals. Everything just defies uh, logic for me to the point where like, I don't even really know what to say anymore. I don't know what to write anymore. I don't know what to talk about on the post game show. Uh, I'm like, I wonder if you guys writing this, like, what are you even saying? It's like, well, they won five, nothing again. Yeah. I keep, I, I, in the press conference (laughs) after the Orlando game, I ended up asking Daniel Gazdog just a terrible question that was basically, you would have boiled it down to like, this is weird. Do you think that this is weird? I mean, I, (laughs) I would think that the, that the, you know, I would think that Jim Curtin is telling his players, Hey, just because you get one doesn't mean that it's going to end up six nothing like you like it usually has yeah. and then it just keeps ending up lopsided and you know some of that i think i was thinking about this yesterday some of that is that when you have four goals on the board the fifth goal is a little easier to get than when you're going from 0 to 1 yeah. they're not quite as complicated yeah. and i think sometimes there are teams that they've just 
absolutely rip the will to live out of. You know, you look at Houston and Colorado, they just absolutely, you know, killed them the mentally. Mental but the, but you're right, because the amazing thing is, is that when you look at the great offensive teams in MLS history, they're teams that want to play wide open games, that want to play 5-3 yeah. games, that want to go end to end, and they're going to say, listen, we're going to give up two, you know, they're, they're great offensively because they have to be, because they're committing massive numbers forward, yeah. they are, they know that they're going to give up two and three goals in games, so they have to score more than two or three goals in games. But for the union to consistently be doing this and still keeping clean sheets, I mean, they've given up, they've given up nine goals in their last thirteen games. Which, okay, you look at, you look at, they've scored forty six goals in those thirteen games, and that's mind bogglingly impressive. But nine goals in thirteen games, Jim, if you told Jim Curtin that he he wouldn't even care what the offense is, he no. would like his chances no matter what. Giving up nine goals in thirteen games, mm-hmm. it's just really, really amazing. Let's uh, before we get any further, let's just go over the shield layout as it stands right now so la finally caught up with their game in hand so la and philadelphia both on 31 games played philadelphia union 63 points lafc 61 points so point being here they control their own destiny now for the first time you know since we started paying attention to the shield race if they win out they win the shield uh they have to play at atlanta uh at charlotte home to toronto all three teams mm-hmm. which are below the playoff line, I, I believe, still at this point. Uh, yes, LA, two of two of which are likely to be eliminated by the time you get to them. Right, right, okay. And then LAFC has Houston at home. They got to go at Portland, and then they have to play Nashville at home. Mm-hmm. The harder path by far. Two of those teams are currently playoff teams. Um, LAFC and, LA, and the other team is Houston, which just absolutely yeah. stomped on. Uh, New England's playoff hopes this week and has a new coach. So you don't really know what you're going to get there. Um, And the union to add to it, uh, they get Atlanta on a short week because Atlanta plays tonight against Orlando. Uh, So you don't know what Orlando, what what Atlanta is going to really be looking like They're they're, They need points obviously. So they're going to be pushing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I believe Toronto is nine points out of a playoff spot. So they're going to be mathematically eliminated by decision day. And I think Charlotte's going to be, very close to mathematically eliminated. So I think that's pretty huge too, because you're not you're gonna get like an Insigne and Bernadeschi, you know, not maybe not as motivated or not having anything to play for, you know. And I think Ins- like I a- think Insigne picked up a knock last game and okay. maybe left early. So he might not even that might be one of those uh hey go go uh go to your place in Lake Como uh, a little early. <laughs> yeah, yeah we'll see I think Insigne is a Southern yeah. Italian, so he's probably doesn't um, have a Lake Como place, but still. But, but I mean, dude, and, and not to get too far ahead of myself, this is the problem when you and I talk, is I always think of 400 things at once. Is like, But, the, you know, the Insigne thing, as an example, you know, Atlanta having to go to Orlando midweek, and, you know, the Union getting them on a short rest. Um, you know, the deflected goal that they scored on Saturday, you know, the PK that they're worth. Oh, man, I... I I, it's just insane to me just how much is, has gone their way this year. Mm-hmm. Like every, every bounce, uh, you know, a bunch of, you know, penalties and different, different disciplinary things that they've escaped for sure. I mean, you know, outside of like, you know, cause we were talking about this on the post game show the other night, me and Jansen, but I was trying to think, you know, besides the Toronto game, when they had their first loss of the year, mm-hmm. when the, when the disciplinary committee came back and said that that should have been a red card and it wasn't a red card. Can you think of anything like egregious that stands out where they where they were wronged or there was like a judgment call or a, or a bad bounce or something that went against them? There hasn't been a ton. Um, I look back even to 
So the the Bizo penalty that he draws against Colorado, that one's comical. That w- that wasn't a penalty. Yes, a, a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I look back to the NYC game at um, the NYC game at Yankee Stadium where uh, Jack Elliott gets the red card, but uh, then they call it off correctly because it was an offside play. So that negates yeah. the red card. So even that kind of helps. Um, yeah, I, I you know. In order to win the supporter shield, you need some luck. And you saw that in 2020, that the luck was a little different in 2020 because they were leaving so many games late. And it was, you know, Anthony Fontana to the rescue 22 yard goal, uh, the McKenzie equalizer late in one of those games that was huge. Yeah. It was a different kind of luck then. But yeah, they do have they do have a lot of breaks going their way. They've gotten um, the benefit of some of the rest in terms of playing Orlando City after the Open Cup, Orlando City then affecting the schedule with Atlanta and all that kind of stuff. So they have gotten some luck, but they've also very much made the most of it. Um, It's, it's, you know, that's what you kind of have to do if you're going to win the Supporter Shield, I think, over a a 34-game season. And uh, to me, the bigger, and this is not luck strictly, Mm -hmm. but to me, the bigger thing that I'm looking at is how many of these games that have started as blow that have ended as blowouts start with the union not on the back foot but dodging bullets so yeah. if you look back to the game in dc blake makes that outstanding save on ravel morrison yeah yeah the new york game um uh, he makes he stops the back heel from Luquinas. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple other ones the the against houston fafa scores a goal and it's called off as an offside. And I don't think it was one. I don't think it was nil nil at that point. But, yeah. you know, it's a bullet dodged. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if in the playoffs when uh, the stakes are obviously raised, they're still able to dodge those bullets. Because those are, you know, in the small sample size of the playoffs, those become so magnified. And yeah. the Union have seen what happens when you score early goals. It changes games. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they're getting a little bit lucky. But that's kind of what you need to have happen in the to have a season like this. They um so just to wrap this up on the shield thing. So LAFC has 19 wins and the Union have 18 wins. That's actually the first tiebreaker. Just so everybody's clear about that, it's, it's total wins before they go to goal differential, which is the second tiebreaker. And obviously, the Union are crushing everybody on goal differential. LAFC would have to win like 10 nothing. Would have to win like seven nothing three times in a row, and the Union would have to lose like oh zero to zero or you know i mean it's just it's impossible for them to kind of you know climb over that but there there is a scenario here where they could both finish on uh the same amount of wins and i haven't like done all the math but if they get to something funky where it's like they both end on 19 wins say you know you could have uh well i don't know because then i don't think uh, lafc could make up enough points with draws to to get there so Scrap that thought, but you get what I'm saying. It's like the first the first tiebreaker is not goal differential. I think a lot of people thought that that was the case, but it's not. It's total wins. So, um, but but bottom line, I mean, they win out and they win the shield. So whatever. Um, back to the luck thing, kind of transitioning into the Orlando game that, that I just want to go over real quick. You know, on that first goal, right? Olivia gets the deflection. You know, but it's exactly kind of like what you're talking about because you could start and stop your analysis and just say, "Well, that was a wicked deflection." The end, you know. But I mean, if you go back and rewind, there's a counter press. Julian Carranza wins the ball, keeps it alive, gives him an extra, you know, possession, a, a, an extra final third entry, 
right? Gosh, dog plays kind of a one, two, and then they ping it out wide zone by And then he f- hits in the cross. It gets deflected and goes over the top. And, you know, I, I, I think that like, I'm, I'm a big believer. And I think this is, was kind of what you were getting at earlier, but you know, there's some like quote where they say, uh, you know, luck is the result of preparation and opportunity, like crossing paths, you know? So like, you can't be in a spot to capitalize or, or put yourself in a position to benefit from luck unless you're putting yourself in good positions to begin with, you know? So like, you're not going to get any deflected goals if you're not in the fucking final third to begin with. So the fact that they work hard and they win the ball and they turn it over and they keep it alive and they give Olivier the ball, I mean, that's what puts them in position to allow luck to then come into play, you know? So I think that's why people got to look at this is the first episode of It's Always Philosophy in Philadelphia. It's Always Philosophy. Like yeah. I'm uh, Emmanuel Kant, and joining us now is Nietzsche. Uh, <laughs> but not nihilistic, you know, very positive in this regard. But, I, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I think that's like an underrated thing. It's like they just, they, you know, they get these deflections and they get these PK calls and they get the stuff like that. But if you're not doing the right things and putting yourselves in those positions, like statistically speaking, like the more final third entries you have, the more of a chance you give yourself for things like that to happen. Right, absolutely. And it, you can go back to the red card and uh, the red card against Colorado. And you can say, okay, well, that's fortunate that they get the red card. But if you watch that play, it's a perfectly executed press where Ua and Carranza just absolutely mob Valencia and he has to make a decision and he makes the wrong decision. I'm a big fan of, and I think this is partially the ethos of uh, counterpressing soccer, is especially in MLS. If you force a decision out of the other guy, more often than not, he's going to mess that up. You know, he's yeah. he's he. If you make him make a choice, he could mess it up. Um, and I think that's something that they've done so well. And to go back to the Bizo goal, yeah, it's a cross. Yeah, it's a deflected cross, and it's lucky and all that kind of stuff. Um, but they also have three runners in the box that he has to aim at. So if Mutinho doesn't get a piece of that, you're still probably you still have a very good chance. He's in. Uh, what Curtin considers the high danger crossing zone at that point, mm-hmm. you're yeah. you're still going to create, in all likelihood, a dangerous chance there, and maybe something else comes of it. Um, so I think that's uh, I think that's creating your own luck. And you you brought up Carranza and the and the kind of pressing. I think it bears mentioning he is so good as a counter presser. Holy, I mean, yeah. there there's been clips where you just see him like you can almost hear like a. a like a radar pinging of like when he closes in on someone, he just absolutely closes guys down and just wins the ball so well. And he does it, you know, he commits a fair amount of fouls and, you know, he's been suspended for, for cards this year and stuff like that. But he is so elite at that. It is really, really tremendous. And I think that's, what's going to eventually when he makes the jump to Europe, that's, what's going to be the fit is that he's going to be a fit for a side that wants to counter press. And he knows how to do that. And I think a lot of, strikers don't you know on the second goal um kind of a weird thing there where leon flock just has the ball and he gets his head up and he kind of dinks it in over top of the defensive mid who's pulled up a little bit and they have a three oh we gotta we gotta give leon flock a little bit more credit than that that was a slide roll pass that was a jack mcglynn like pass that was a night pass yeah well listen i I, split some lines in a way that i didn't know that leon flock could really do before yeah and i mean whatever you know the bottom line from that was that the D mid was kind of taken out of it. Right. And so you yeah. kind of look up and it's like, Oh, now you got kind of even, even numbers going forward, even strength as they say in hockey. And, um, you know, Daniel Godshock just slots a ball in the channel there. And I don't, I don't know if Antonio Carlos was like looking for the goalkeeper to come out and get it. Or if he was just, a, if he's just the slowest person on the planet, but 
he had the inside position, the inside track there, you know, leverage against Ua, who just like cooked him on the outside, who just ran outside of him and got to the ball before before he did. And uh, you know, but again, that's like that points to them like understanding each other. And I'm gonna mm-hmm. put this ball here because I know you're gonna go on a Sebastian Latou kind of run, mm-hmm. roll it into space, get it behind the defender, let me get onto it. And just kind of takes a couple touches and just kind of lashes. You know, he, he reminds me so much of Latou, man, because he's makes these early runs. He gets his head up. He's a smart player. Some of his finishing isn't as like clean or as like you know smooth as you would want it to be. And he kind of like hacked at it with his right foot, but he scores anyway. And he just it just goes back to I think the larger point and all that is like all three of these forwards, the front three, like they're all just smart players, man. Yeah. They have good like soccer brains. They just know when to go and they know when not to go. They know where to be. And you know, I don't know how many times they, they find the ball in there and they kind of ping it back and forth. I'm like, there's like three guys up here against like five, you know, the opponent has like five back and yet they find a way to like carve something out of it, you know, just yeah. because gosh, dog anticipation, recognition, knowing where to go with the ball or, you know, getting early transition runs on the ball. Carranza, you talking about him turning over other teams and being able to hold it up and, and link up a little bit. They each bring a little bit different, to the table, but they're all very smart in how they go about it. Mm-hmm. So two things about that goal that stood out to me. The first is that Ua is so good at letting the ball run and not taking extra touches. So yeah. there was a goal. I don't remember which, all these goals really blur together. Oh, there's too many goals, man. What do we do? I can't, I can't remember them all. You know, I, I was having a conversation with a union staffer who's been there for a very long time. And I just casually pointed out, you know, my job was a lot easier when it was just, when it was just Danny Cruz trying to run through a wall. But there was the one goal where Bedoya plays kind of the curling pass into Ua, and it looks like he took two or three touches, but in reality, it was it was towards – he scored it into the river end. But in reality, he just let the ball run, let it run, yeah. let it run alongside of him, and then one poke and quick, done. And he's so clever about that uh, in terms of not taking extra touches because I think sometimes, especially big center forwards, when they take extra touches – they then, they then play themselves out of the play, sort of. Um, yeah, let the ball do the work. Yeah. The other thing that was so impressive about that goal is I actually thought Gazdag made the wrong decision. Because if you look at it when he gets the ball, Carranza has more room and a better angle. Hmm. But the point was that Gazdag made a quick decision. And that means he forced the decision on Orlando. And Orlando then didn't react. So it's one of those moments of like, back to it's always philosophy in Philadelphia. Um, It's not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good there. He made a good quick decision instead of waiting the extra second to maybe let it develop and see if the perfect option comes. And he made the quick decision to Ua and then Ua just does the rest. And I, I think his finishing is actually really clean and pretty simple in that he just, he, he has the equivalent of a quick release in like, lacrosse or basketball where yeah, it's almost like it's almost like a snapshot um, but he gets but he gets power and placement behind yeah. it and he just yeah. gets it off boom and keeps the i think he catches goalies by surprise as a result yeah maybe i think the i think in what i was trying to explain there i think like he doesn't look as clean or polished maybe because he is letting the ball do the work and just like reaching yeah. it hitting it as it as it rolls or as it as it sits you know which is why if you take a touch and line it up and set it how you want it's going to look just the, the motions are going to look more fluid and complete you know where he he kind of lashes a little bit at it but that's because he's letting it roll and like time and, and timing it perfectly you know so but i think that's i think that's what you need in this often in this attack where you're not creating your chances because your chances are coming from turnovers 
you know, because they're coming out of the counter press. You need to kind of be able to hit it where it lies in in some way. As I now add another cross sport metaphor. Shooter, shooter McGavin there. That's yeah. He's got to play the ball off of Frankenstein's fat foot. <laughs> I like that. I like it's always philosophy in Philadelphia. It's a potential show title, though. I was there gonna we do, go. I was gonna do something about controlling your own destiny, but I like the I like the philosophy one better. This is the only podcast where you can get Immanuel Kant uh, references in Philadelphia. I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm going to watch the Philosophers football game for Monty Python after this is over. So there you go. How many Eagles fans, by the way, do you think know who Immanuel Kant is? Don't answer that question. They would probably uh, yell at you for call, for saying a name that you're not supposed to say on broadcast television. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. I, I told Jansen this on the postgame show. I was like, I can only break down the first three goals because I didn't remember the fourth and the fifth goals because it's too much for me to process in my brain. But I thought uh, the penalty on the third one was a little weird because – you know, you have plays like that where the goalkeeper spills it, then he's close to it. But, you know, the offensive player, in, or in this case, gets a toe on it, pokes it. And, yes, he does get there first and the goalkeeper hits him. But that ball wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. It was probably just rolling out of play. And so, I don't know. I would like it refs, refs use at least a little bit more discretion there to say, like, hey, is he, is he like, getting to that anyway? Is anything going to materialize out of this? Because, you know, if you take the goalkeeper and, like, transpose him out of the picture completely and, like, just do the toe poke, I don't think or even if he stayed on his feet was getting to that or doing anything with it. So no, I think I think common sense says that's not a penalty because yeah. he's never getting to the ball on the other end. And I don't think it's a dive. But I think it's making the most of the contact. But uh, to me, common sense says. Uh, then again, it's also a little stupid of the goalie to put himself in that position. But yeah, pull your think, pull your hands back and just try to. Yeah, know, and he also it. he also spills it to lead to that. But yeah, you know, yeah. I don't think he. I, it wasn't the best. Wasn't the best penalty. Well, let me. I don't, even, I don't even remember the fifth goal. Who was the fifth goal? Oh, Elliot. There was nothing to talk about on that one anyway. That's oh, just the header. Yeah, the, the header at the back there. That's we, that's just right that's down. just we gave up on. Sorry, defender. Time. You scored a great goal, but we're just going to ignore it because the game was over at that. But that's that's what reality is with the Philadelphia Union this season. You know, we only analyze the first three goals they score, and then everything else we'll just kind of figure figure out as we go along. I'm not mentally prepared to have more than three goals to to, I know. to process. I know it's a lot to parse, man. We'd have to do like a three hour show to be able to fit fit it all in. We only we can only we have to be selective with our Philadelphia Union goals this year. It's the dilemma we face with the team being this good. Um, what did you think of so if, you this, if you showed this show to someone in 2014, they would just, <laughs> they would try and drown you in the river like a witch. It's like if we had like the DeLorean or something and we went back and like, you know, showed this episode to our past selves, we would have been, uh, you know, I don't know. Not, not have been gobsmacked, not gobsmacked, not capable of comprehending it. I, um, I was getting a lot of shit from people because I thought in real time, I don't know what you guys saw uh, in the stadium, but when Martinez went and chest, uh, chest lunged, chest speared uh, the other guy, it looked on TV like he got him on, uh, like he got him with his head on the mouth a little bit. And uh, I thought it was going to be a suspension if the disciplinary committee saw that he made any contact with his face. I mean, it looked like the other player flopped, but we didn't get a better, you know, angle on TV. And people at the stadium were saying that they showed it from the side. And that it was only chest, and that the guy kind of made a meal of it and put his like bent his head down like this to kind of force the contact. But I don't know. Did you? Did they show anything? I don't remember seeing it, and I actually didn't see it live because I followed the ball. So at first, when uh, when it was tweeted, I thought it was much worse. Like I like when like I think Jonathan tweeted uh, that that Martinez might be in a little bit of trouble, and I thought he maybe like stepped on someone or something. Mm -hmm. Um, But so maybe it's just. 
maybe it's just a testament of my thoughts about Jose Martinez that I thought it could have been much worse. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, the bottom line is like, he's just, I, I, that's one of my biggest concerns for this team in the playoffs is like one stupid thing from him, you know? And I, I get that like, he's an emotional player and like, you know, stuff like that is part of your game. And like, you just, you are in a certain mindset the entire time. That's kind of what motivates you. and makes you go. Like if you take that out of his game, is he the same player? I don't know. But you know, you just, that stuff worries you because you know, if the ref saw it differently, or the other guy had stepped up and, and wasn't selling it and you go head to head and you make contact with them, then you're off, man. You know? And so it's like, I, but I don't know. I mean, the disciplinary committee is probably going to come back based on what people are telling me and saying that they probably just saw chest to chest, but you know how they are with the, with the hands or, or with the, uh, any contact to the, what did it say? The head or neck area. You know I mean? That's always been like a one game suspension. So it just looked like that from the back angle that we had, but people at the stadium were telling me that it was different. So Sure, we'll get I mean, the disciplinary if, uh, committee email like Friday, right? Yeah, if he if he if he gets a one game rest and, and doesn't have to go to Atlanta, that's not the worst thing in the world. I think no. I think it gets you, it gets you Jack McGlynn. Um, although I will say, um, I will say against Atlanta, you probably want Leon Flock on the left because you're going to want to press them uh, pretty significantly. That worked yeah. pretty well the the last time they played, so you're going to want to press them. But you know. If if he's if he misses a game, maybe it just freshens him up. You know, people have been asking me on you know the post game show and various other shows like, what do you see that's been different? You know, why did they start scoring goals all of a sudden? You know, I don't really have much of an answer for it to be honest. You know, Jim came out. You know, we asked Jim about it a couple of weeks ago, and he said, well, you know, we're trying to drop Alejandro Bedoya a little bit deeper, try to get him on the ball a little bit more, uh, try to push the right fullback up ahead of him. Uh, you know, there hasn't been a big change though in their possession number. You know. Early in the season, they were dead last in possession. They were below 40%. They were like 39. And when I went and looked again, they're at like 43. Okay, so they're still like 28th in the league. They're still like close to the bottom. They're not at the very bottom, but they're not possessing much more of the ball. Their their pass percentage is 74.9, which is still the second worst in the league. Red Bull, of course, 69.5. So your two pre- frenetic pressing teams are at the very bottom, you know. Um, dribbles per game, very bottom. Same thing. All their defensive metrics are the same, though. Top five in aerial duels, one, tackles, interceptions, everything. I, I don't – like, I honestly don't know what happened. I don't know what clicked. I think they believe in their ability to hold the ball a little bit and play mm-hmm. some better passes and, like, understand what they are. But to me, I don't really have anything, like, profound to say beyond. I just think that the the front three kind of gets it now. Mm-hmm. You know, or is healthy. Gosh, dog knows what his role is and, and what he has to do. And I think they just like something just clicked mentally for them. They're not doing anything tactically that's much different outside of that one tweak, and they're not doing anything formation wise that's different. So for me, I just I would give the credit to the players for figuring it out. Yeah, I think what they've managed to do. I know what they're doing. I don't quite know how they're doing it. What they've managed to do is create a lot of goals that are basically like their training exercises where they're isolating def- they're isolating defenders in possession and they're able to go like 3v4, 3v5 against some of these guys and flood mm-hmm. forward. And they're able to put the ball in the back of the net. I, I think they are doing... I, I don't have access to the second spectrum data and all that kind of stuff, but I yeah. think they're doing a good, a better job of effective field position in that they're getting the ball high quickly. And yep. that comes from, I think that actually leads, I think actually the pass completion number plays into that because they're not completing a ton of passes, but they are playing the ball forward more. 
So they're yeah. at least they're at least advancing the field position in some ways so that they can then turn teams over. So, you know, to Jim Curtin, I think from their midfielders, they would rather have an incomplete long pass forward mm-hmm. in the right areas than a complete uh, backwards or negative pass. It's why I, it's why I don't think Darlington Nagby would be a fit for this team because he no. just plays the same 10-yard pass over that's and over why again. All, and that's why those statistics are largely bullshit without context because yeah. I'll use a great example here. I love him. He's a great dude. He's been on the show before. Mike LaHood could go out and complete 99% of his passes every game, mm-hmm. but they're sideways and backwards and they're safe and you're just moving the ball around. But, you know, right. that's why, you know, when you why I don't think it, it's why I don't think Darlington Nagby is really that good. But no, no, and I, I think point. there's a lot of yeah, I think there's a lot of nuance you got to apply to his game. But like at some point, and Jim was talking about this when I had him on, I guess at the end of last year. I would like to go back and like pull the quotes again if I could. But they stopped being a like a, a true pressing team when Brendan Aronson left. They still press, they still mm-hmm. play high, they still turn teams over, but they're not. But they were they were not a their entire like focal point is not like predicated on that anymore. You know, at some point they transition from being a, like a high pressing team press with the 10 turn teams over, get out quickly into like wherever you win the ball on the field, like bang, let's go early transition, Mm -hmm. you know, like Leon flock wins a ball in his own half, gets his head up one pass, two pass. You're in, you know, like that's not a stuff. And that's not, it's kind of counterattacking, but it's not really, you know? And so that when you, when you, understand that it's like the low percentage passing completion makes a ton of sense you know you'd mm-hmm. expect it to be lower you know what i mean but that's just that's just what there's some kind of hybrid of like all three of those things now you know i think like the what happened man was like high press high press high press became this like trendy thing because a lot of teams were doing it and like it was easy to understand easy for people to talk about but they haven't been a high a quote-unquote high pressing team for two years now they do mm-hmm. a little bit of pressing they do a little bit of counterattacking. And then the other like one third of what their identity is now is just ball wins anywhere on the field, head up early transition. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see like within that framework of being like kind of a, like three different teams at once, like how they've been able to score as many goals as they have. You, I mean, you just got to give a ton of credit to the front three and, and uh, you know, and, and Alejandro Bedoya and Kai Wagner for, for playing their part in it. Yeah. And it's, so there's a couple things that I think play into that. And the, the, they they are not a high pressing team really that much anymore because i mean they are a pressure team but yeah. they want to sit in more of a mid block defense and that makes sense because yeah. they're excellent defensively so they want to do that but at the same you know they they're comfortable not giving up goals in that in that structure yeah. but at the same time uh what allows that to happen is that they have an excellent passing left back in Kai Wagner mm-hmm. they have two excellent passing uh, elite for this league passing center backs. They have probably the best ball distributor as a six. Uh, you want to throw Jackson Ewell in there maybe, but one of the best distributors at the six. And then they've got guys that just run their asses off and as their midfield shuttlers. And yeah. so that allows them to gain the, pose- the the field position. I think they are a team though, that is adaptable in the sense of, listen, you're going to go to Atlanta and you're going to go to Charlotte in the next two weeks, and both of those teams are going to want to play out of the back. Charlotte's going to Charlotte's going to do that stupid, uh, you know, three yard pass to the center back from the goalie that I absolutely hate. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And last time when they did it at, at Subaru Park, it cost them a goal because yeah. Kalina passed it right. But like they'll 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 take what the opponent gives them in terms of field position and tactics, yeah. and they can adapt. I think it really does start from the defense though of finding what position of that back line is the most comfortable for them, and then kind of reverse engineering everything else off of that of where they gain possessions, where they have their recoveries, and then forcing the ball quickly either quickly down their throats or knowing the kind of moments of like, okay, we need to take a recovery period here. We're going to pass it back. And then maybe instead of Jose starting it with a forward pass, we're going to pass it around the back four for a couple minutes and, or well, for a couple exchanges. And it's going to be Glesnus that hits the big switch that then yeah. triggers the attack. Um I have a couple more things written down here, but I don't want to. T- I don't want to keep you too long, and I do just want to take some fan questions because I didn't get to them last time, and we had shitty shitty audio problems, so I apologize for that. Here, I'll, I'll give you a list. Pick one you want to talk about here. Um, the Gage Dog is not even the MVP of his own team. Take uh, <laughs> this is one of the best Philly teams ever, not just Philadelphia Union teams ever. Uh, Drew Yearwood's three game suspension that I went ballistic over and was arguing with everybody on Twitter. Um, or the Gary Neville comments about the Yankees ruining English football. Oh God, I don't ever care about Gary Neville. I'm barely, I'm barely starting to care about Phil Neville, who I think has done a very good job in Miami this year. Um, yeah, do you I care feel, about any Neville out there? Uh, I uh, only, only the one from Harry Potter. Was that Neville Longbottom? Yeah, give me your Mount Rushmore of Neville's. <laughs> My Mount Rushmore of Neville's. Yeah. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> I I feel for Drew Yearwood because I know he that was a rush of blood to the head and yeah. you know uh, so many players do that and they manage to hit the ad boards and not some woman's face um, yeah. and they get away with it I feel for him and but that's still a stupid decision. Um, what was the first one? Daniel Gazdag. I I I am so struggling with who the MVP of this team is. I keep yeah, asking I other we're... reporters. Let me set it up. I'm sorry, by I think Doyle's going to come on the show next week. I'm going to try to get him on. But he, but some Union fans are like pissed off at him because I think he said like Daniel Gage Dog is not even the MVP of his own own team. So how can he make him the MVP of the league? He's been. I mean, Doyle has been beating the drum for Jose Martinez as the MVP of hmm. this team, which is interesting. I you know in certain conversations I've had with other beat writers, some have said Jacob Glesnus is the MVP. I tend to think, and this is maybe this is the local journalist in me of having picked um, a, a lo- too many all Delco teams in my days, but mm-hmm. I try to trust coaches. And so if Jim Curtin is banging on the table and saying that it's Andre Blake is his most valuable player, then I kind of believe him. Um, I would lean towards Kai Wagner, honestly. I mean, I know that the, the 15 assists is inflated because yeah. it's only nine primary assists, but to have played every minute as part of that defense, I think to me gives him as much defensive credibility almost as Glesnus plus the yeah. attacking part of it. So this, this falls under the category of good problems to have. I don't, I tend to think that Gazdag has been the most valuable player on this team. If only because I, I believe he has eight game winning goals. I think he had a ton of goals early to salvage results when the rest of the attack either wasn't there or was still developing. Um, so to me, I think Gazdag is maybe the most valuable, but the Andre Blake argument yeah. carries a lot of weight. I mean, 
I don't know what that DC game is like if he doesn't stop Ravel Morrison. I don't know what the the Red Bulls game is like if he doesn't stop Luquinius. Like, yeah, yeah, he's done that a bunch. I just don't like. See, the problem with MVP too is that it's a very subjective thing. We can argue this shit about basketball and sports, talk and it's always goals, attacking players. It's, it's always, always attacking players. players. And here's a good thing: like, I'm obviously very biased as a defender. You know, obviously, I'm going to show favor to the position that I always played. But I think if somebody put a gun to my head right now, I'd probably say Kai Wagner. Um, because like, if you reverse engineer the MVP topic and you ask it differently and you say, who is the like most irreplaceable guy on the team? Mm. Who's the biggest like step down on the depth chart? And I know that's, that's a little bit wonky because, you know, in some positions you're better stocked than other positions. But like, Mm. to me, I think they take the biggest hit on the field by taking Kai Wagner, Andre Blake, Mm-hmm. And then Daniel Gage dog off. Like to me, when yeah. Stuart Finley came in for those couple games before he was transferred, like he was pretty good, right? And I, felt I actually, good about I actually thought Glesnus went through a real rough patch right around, yeah. the, right yeah, around. I, like I, I thought he was terrible in Cincinnati, and that yeah. that's not disqualifying. Everyone's entitled to those days, yeah. But you know, and but, I also think Jack Elliott. Make- if I had to pick between the two center backs, I, I I would slightly give the edge to Jack Elliott. Just based on because I think when Glessis has a bad game, it's much more noticeable than when Jack has a bad game. So is that, if a, asking, is that know, a giant West Virginia flag behind you? <laughs> is a, that what that is? That's just a football, but yes. Yeah, so okay, theoretically oh, making sure. Yeah, theoretically waving the. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, I, but but here's the thing. Like, no, I actually, early, I actually think year, Jack Elliott has been every bit as good, if not better, this year in some ways. Yeah, way back when when this team couldn't score at all at the beginning of the year, I mean, like Kai Wagner's assists were huge and Mm -hmm. he was the best, like two, well, strangely enough, he was the best, like two way player, Mm -hmm. you know, like the assists that he was providing going forward in the set piece service. And then what he was doing in defense as well. So you can make an argument, his MVP argument would be like, nobody's contributed more to both Mm -hmm. ends of it. I mean, if you wanted to try to go that route, but then you could counter, counter my thought by saying, well, of course a striker's not going to go back and, you know, make a goal line clearance or whatever so i i it's all subjective it's, but, but it's the shohei otani argument that he does <laughs> he, that he does both yeah except that when when he's putting up uh you know amazing numbers people actually know about it because he plays for a team that people actually are familiar with mike trout i didn't even know was going for eight home runs in a row yes i only know that because i've been working a lot of desk this week so i'm yeah, yeah. forced to read those articles yeah, exactly um, um yeah and i think you the corollary to the kai wagner argument is that the distant the the vast gulf between him and the next best left back in MLS is absolutely massive as opposed to you know there's not that distance at some of the other positions certainly not with God's dog no offense but yeah. you know there's great number 10s in this league and same you know to a certain extent with the center backs but i think Glesnes' uh MVP team MVP candidacy is undercut somewhat by the fact that the guy next to him is every bit as good yeah. So it's it's kind of rough. Uh, let's just rip through a couple questions and I'll let you go here. Um, gotcha. Kyle Pagan from Crossing Broad, my, my co-worker with a shit question here. He says, did Queen Elizabeth, a known Arsenal fan, die on purpose to give Spurs too much rest and screw over Harry Kane and the boys in the Champions League? Uh, I, I think I think the only answer is clearly yes. Yes. I mean, obviously, you know, what are we going on two weeks, a week and a half now with not playing Premier League? I don't know. Is Queen Elizabeth still dead? Yeah, yeah. Okay. The Queen Elizabeth jokes are crazy, man. I, I was like not ready for that. Um, I don't really have a Queen Elizabeth take. Like I was not ready for that. I, I was like, do people like her? Do they not like her? I found out that she was a very um, 
polarizing figure. That's what I've learned in the last week or so. Um, who's your dark horse from Ian? Who's your dark horse is the biggest threat to derail a playoff run? Uh, I was going to say Columbus, but they might not even make the playoffs. Are you, let me ask, um, are you worried about Montreal? Yes and no. I, I Montreal is a very, very good team. Wilfred Nancy has done an excellent job. They have tremendous team structure. I think Victor Wanyama is one of the better low-key signings of the last five years in MLS. Yeah. Jordi Mihailovic is outstanding. Romo Kyoto has had a great season. Kai Kamara pumped in two goals last night at the age of 67, and he is still going to you know, murder you if you get in his way. But I just don't think that they have if, – if this if, – I'll put it this way. If it was a best of seven series, I would be ex- I would be terrified of Montreal because mm-hmm. I think they wear you down with their structure and the way that they're able to control you and stuff like that. They don't have that super electric one-off talent that keeps you up at night in the way yeah. that yeah. I think Columbus does with Cucho Hernandez and Zella Rayon, in the way that Cincinnati does with Vasquez and Luciano Acosta and now Brenner who's pumping in goals and Alvaro yeah. Barrial, who was the best player on the field when they beat the Living Daylights out of the Union. They just they don't terrify me all that no, much. No. I think Kai Kamara and Kyoto are guys you can game plan for, you can handle. You know, I would be more concerned if they got like another Lucho Acosta, you know, Brandon Vasquez kind of deal where they had some tricky, like smaller guys to deal with or just, uh, you know, like a front front three that kind of gives some issues. Um, I mean, Kyoto, Kyoto is a guy that if he's going to play on the wing is going to pin back your outside back. So that has a knock-on yeah. effect that you have to be aware of. But they've also played okay against them this year. And granted, that was early in the season, but mm-hmm. they also didn't catch them without Mihailovic. So I don't know. Yeah. Mihailovic is playing great and maybe he's the game changer that you can, that you can worry about. But uh, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, terrified of montreal in in chester this is a good question here uh what departures do you expect this winter i feel like the current crop of u20s aren't ready for the jump uh but wouldn't be surprised if there's a couple of exits like martinez and wagner um you know and if jose leaves his flock project as a long-term number six i say yes yes and yes i'm surprised they kept martinez and wagner as long as they have to be quite quite honest and you know it's funny because everybody's still doing the, like the union academy and kids storyline but that really hasn't been the case this year. I mean, those guys haven't like contributed as much in the past as like the McKenzie and the Brendan Aronson year where they were both starters. You've got some Nathan Harriel starts. You've got some Jack McGlynn starts. You know, but beyond that, you know, the senior guys are playing so much better that a lot of the kids can't even get on the field. So to me, like the Ernst Tanner storyline of 2022 is just shrewd scouting. They'll play when they're ready to play or when yeah. they're needed to play. I, I don't think that there's – I don't know. I don't – I don't – I don't see – I don't understand the push to have the pl- the young kids play right now because who are you going to sit? Who, yeah. who are you going to sit? They f- they found a good rotation with Harriel and Bizo. They found a good rotation with McGlynn and Flock of when you need pressing and when you need uh, resistance to the press, and they've done an excellent job with that. It's fine. It's working. In terms of departures, I expect Kai Wagner to go in the winter. Uh, I just think it's time, and they're going to need to find some kind of a replacement there. Um, I think, I think Jose Martinez is unfortunately at 28. Um, he's in that donut hole of, I don't know who in Europe is going to buy him. Yeah. I don't think people, I don't think people fully realize how terrible the finances of most European clubs are. There are five clubs in Spain and three in France that are capable of 
paying someone like Jose Martinez. You know where I can and see he, Jose Martinez. He's not Basque. He, the only way that he's going to make a move is if he goes to Brazil or Mexico. Unfortunately, I was just going to say that I could see him playing in Liga MX. I could see him playing for like a uh, like a Brazil or Argentina team. Like he is a, more like than a, capable of playing in either of those leagues, I mean, and he he's capable play, of he, playing in Spain. He could very easily play for like a Boca or a River or a Santos or a you know a you know take your Flamengo, take your pick. I'd of love, like I'd love to see him. I'd love to see him on a Serie A team, to be quite honest. And there's teams, especially in the north of yeah. Italy, that have had good history with South Americans. Yeah. Uh, Torino's had South Americans. Yeah. Uh, um, Sampdoria, yeah. a place like that. You put him in. You put him in some kind of a a traditional four two three one, or you put him in a three five two as kind of the backline shield, and just have him go kill people. He's going to create in- international incidents, but you know. He's, he's going to be worth it. And he's going to be fun. Final thought, man. I mean, anything else in your mind that you want to say before we get up, get on up out of, get up on out of here? I'm going to say something that I don't that I'm that shocks me. If if the Philadelphia Union, uh, the Philadelphia Union have three games left in the regular season and potentially three games in the postseason, I think if they have the starting eleven available to them that they had in the last game for each of these next six games, they're going to win two trophies. They, they are the best team in MLS. And I think um, if nobody gets hurt, specifically if a center back doesn't get hurt or one of those starting forwards doesn't get hurt, they're, they're going to win. They have the potential to win MLS cup. Um, And that shocks me. That shocks me. They have created the best team in MLS this year. Uh, Ernst Tanner should be, the executive of the year for the next three years with all the things that he's done. I tweeted this last night, but he, I, I don't know if people realize this fully, but he replaced Casper Shabilko, Sergio Santos and Jamiro Montero with Ua Carranza and Gazdag in the space of a year. And he has gone from that group will probably contribute 20 goals this year. It's far less this year. It's barely 10 mm-hmm. uh, in their separate, their separate new, new homes and instead, this new trio has had 45 goals, 45 goals from those three guys. It's absolutely stunning. And, uh, you know, I, I hope Union fans are enjoying this ride because this is not only a good team, this is a fun team. And you look at teams like Red Bulls in the last couple of years, they have played absolutely joyless battering ram soccer. And the Union are not that. They are a fun Beautiful. team. and. I think Curtin mentioned it at his last press conference and it was kind of profound of like, we don't have a lot of time to step back and, and look at what we're doing and enjoy it, but that he hopes the fans are enjoying these games. And, you know, those six, nothing, seven, nothing, five, one games, (laughs) they might not ever happen again. So I hope that the fans are enjoying this run and, you know, that they're going to enjoy, um, that they're going to enjoy decision day against Toronto and maybe up to three playoff games here in the city. That would be something special for this club. I'll I also take think it one step further. I also Not think I. you didn't ask me about playoff teams, but I believe if the Union uh, get NYCFC in the sec- in the Eastern Conference semifinals, uh, they're going to beat them six to one. That wow. I think I think that could be the the real seal of approval on all of this, the cosmic payback of last year's COVID game and all that kind of stuff and everything that NYC is going through. I think that would be a Karma. little bit. That would be a little karmic in that first in that Eastern Conference semifinal if it's NYCFC because 
I think the union would absolutely just blow them straight across to New Jersey in and with the way put, that they're playing. And then they take the supporter shield and they put a huge cake on the supporter shield. They find the person at MLS that made them play without 11 players this year and they shove the cake shield in that person's face and they tell them to eat it. Cake shield. That's perfect, like just perfect karma. I'll take it a step further. Not a hot take here. This team, Philadelphia Union team, has is already the best Philadelphia Union team of all time. I think they have a chance to be one of the best Philadelphia sports teams ever. No joke. Not, you know, saying that to say that. Look back on it. If things go well in the next couple months or so, you know, and people are five for five fans, we could probably compare this team to the 83 Sixers, 2017 Eagles, those Flyers teams of the 70s. Man, I'm not kidding. What they are doing in their sport is akin to what those teams did in their sport. So, again, not a hot take at all. Let's not jinx it. Knock on wood. I don't have that kind of power, but yeah, yeah I think I think yeah. the comparison to the 80 Phillies is almost apt in some ways in the sense of the long barren period that that came before it and yeah. getting over the hump. That would be a that would be a decent comparison. This is for what them. we'll do. If all this comes true, we'll save this and then we'll put it up on Twitter a couple months from now. And if it doesn't come true, I'll go, I'll re-edit the episode and I'll just cut the back end off of it and we'll just pretend that we never said any of this shit. All right. That's okay. I it won't be the worst it won't be the worst hot take that I've ever had. I just want to rerun that that tweet that I had a few years ago of joking that the if the union ever won the US Open Cup, the victory parade would just be Fabinho in the back of Jim Curtin's SUV. So that's that's kind of the only thing I want to rerun out of all of this. Matt the George from the Delco Times. It's always a pleasure, man. Thanks for joining me. I apologize to everybody last week for the technical audio issues. It happens every so often. Fuck it. We'll do it live. We'll see you next time.